pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being in this place on this beautiful day to be able on this Palm Sunday to celebrate your goodness, your mercy, your love, your son's gift for us, his choosing to die that we might live. I pray, God, that that fact will be real in us when we're done in a way that it isn't even now, Lord, that it would be even more attractive, even more persuasive, even more formative, even, even more transformative because of our time in your word now. So speak to us from your word in this moment, in this day, on this Palm Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we call it Palm Sunday because of this text in Matthew 21. When they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So while we were gone, some things were happening over here on this side of the world. Tiger Woods made his return to competitive golf, although not really competitive today, but nonetheless, that was certainly in the news. We were watching that from over there. We were watching the opening of Major League Baseball happen this week. And of course, the Rangers lost the first two games of the year because they have hitting and no pitching. So some things don't change, right? Some things are just what they are. Well, over in Israel, in the midst of all of this, there was unfortunately some street violence as sometimes happens there. We're completely safe. There's never been an attack on a tourist from 1948 to today, but uh, there were some things that were happening there at that point. Their government, their politics. Well, you think we have interesting politics here. They have a parliament called the Knesset, 120 seats. Take 61 seats to get a majority. They never have any party win 61 seats, so then a bunch of parties get together and make a coalition to get to the 61 which is what's happened. And now this lady, Adit Silman, has withdrawn from the coalition. She did that last week. So now they may have to have an, be their fifth elections in the last three years. I came back and I'm grateful for our political system, kind of, a little bit. So that's going on over there in the midst of all of that. And of course, COVID. So we had to be tested within three days of leaving. And then when we landed at Ben Gurion Airport, we were taken to this room that's not me, but where uh, I did that, all of us had to do that to be tested before we're allowed into Israel. And then on the way back, we had to be COVID tested at the hotel before we could get on the airplane to fly back. I actually had three of our people test positive. They are quarantining in Israel as we speak right now. We'll be there a week. Now, Israel pays for that. They put them in a hotel. They feed them. They do all of that. But nonetheless, challenging days, you know. Well, in the midst of all the paradoxes, all the challenges of Israel these days, on Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, there were three challenges in the heart of God, three dilemmas God was facing on the first Palm Sunday that are more significant than any dilemmas we're facing in our news. 
more significant than any challenges we are looking at in our culture. Three solutions God comes to for these dilemmas that change everything about our lives, everything about our eternities, everything about the challenges we face today. So on this Palm Sunday, let's just look at those. Let's look at God solved his three dilemmas, and let's see how that relates to your dilemmas, to your challenges, to your issues today. One of them has to do, you could say, with the character of God, another with the heart of mind of God, and a third with the heart of God. So first, the character of God. Here's God's first problem on Palm Sunday. The Bible says God is love. The Bible also says God is holy. In fact, holy, holy, holy. And you repeat for emphasis in Judaism. We would say holy, holy, or holiest. They say holy, holy, holy to get to the superlative level. Holiest, you could say. God is love, God is holy, and we are sinners. What's God going to do about that? If God is love, he wants you to be forgiven, wants you to spend eternity with him. He's your father just like you're the father of your kids and your grandkids, and you can't wait to be with him. Well, he even more than that. But because God is holy, he must judge sin. So how can God be love and God be holy and we be sinners? How does God resolve that dilemma? Well, that's what happened this holy week, as you know, at the cross. When God transferred our sin to his sinless son so he could be loving to us and yet judge sin and we could spend eternity with him. That's why Jesus is the lamb slain from the creation of the world, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. On By his wounds we are healed. As it was predicted a thousand years before Good Friday, they pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. From my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before the crucifixion, God had this plan. His sinless son would die to pay the debt we owed to purchase our salvation. And that's how God resolved his first dilemma. How can he be loving? How can he be holy? How can we be sinners? That's how it comes together this week, Holy Week. But God has a second dilemma, specifically on Palm Sunday, and it's one the first we're familiar with, the second one not so much. So here's Jesus. Well, this isn't, no one took this on their iPhone, but this is a depiction of Jesus on Palm Sunday. He's making his way down from the Mount of Olives, and that's off to the west of the city, and he's coming down and getting ready, or to the east of the city, rather, he's getting ready to come down and make his way into the city itself, and this massive crowd shows hosannas, and they're putting palm branches, and they're putting uh, clothing in front of them, and, and coats, and all of this. How is Jesus going to be executed for our sin? How is he going to be the sacrifice for our sin when he's so popular, when the crowds are following him with such adoration? The authorities want him to be removed because he's a threat to their authority, and they're terrified that he's going to start some uprising against the Romans. Then the Romans will come in and put down the rebellion and get rid of them. That's what Caiaphas, the high priest, is worried about. That's what the Sanhedrin is worried about. What are they going to do about this Jesus, this rabble-rouser, this, uh, this instigator, this problem, as they're seeing him? But he's too popular. How can, they, how can they have him arrested and not have the very riot they're trying to prevent? So he teaches in the temple uh, precincts. That's a model of the temple. And they're trying to defeat him there in debate, trying to prove him to be a heretic, trying to prove him to be someone the crowds ought not follow. But he keeps defeating them in debate. Remember all of that? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And keeps defeating their debates, keeps proving his superiority. So what are they going to do? 
Jesus came to die. How's it going to be arranged for him to die? How are the authorities going to arrest him when he's so popular? How are they going to have him executed without the crowds revolting the very thing they're trying to prevent? Jesus solves the problem for them. This is something a lot of folk don't know about Monday, Thursday, later this week. It says in John chapter 18, this is Monday, Thursday, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like today, part of it anyway. And that olive tree is 2,000 years old. Olive trees grow off their roots. Botanically, that's 2,000 years old. It goes back to the time of Christ. Here's the point. Judas who betrayed him knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas is going to betray Jesus, but if he does it in public, light of day, there'll be the very revolt the authorities are trying to prevent. So Jesus goes to the one place where Judas can find him. Under cover of darkness while the crowds are asleep. So that he can be arrested without the very revolt the authorities are trying to prevent. Jesus arranges this. Jesus goes where Judas can find him and waits on Judas to find him on Monday, Thursday night. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so it was on Monday, Thursday night that they dragged Jesus off to Annas and Caiaphas. This is a church which is where Caiaphas' house was in Jesus' day. We actually have the tomb, the casket, the ossuary of Caiaphas. It's in the Israel Museum. I've seen it many times. It has his name on it, Caiaphas, the high priest. And it's there. They have to find some charge against Jesus that will cause the crowds to turn against him when they make this public. So they accuse him of blasphemy. Can't be the Messiah if he's a blasphemer, right? They convict Jesus of blasphemy on that Thursday night and that Friday morning. Then they drag him over to Pilate. Here's a model of Herod's palace where probably Pilate was on Good Friday. Well, the Romans don't care about a charge of blasphemy. You might accuse me of blasphemy, but you're not going to get a civil court to put me in jail for that. So now they changed the charge to insurrection against the Romans because that's the very thing that Pilate can't have is a rebellion, a riot. And they get Pilate to condemn Jesus and sends him to the cross. And Jesus arranged it all. He went to the very garden where he could be found under cover of darkness so the crowds won't know in riot. He withstands illegal trials, at least 17 ways they were illegal from the high priest to convict him of blasphemy and then Pilate of insurrection so he can die for us. Resolves the dilemma for us this week. But there's one other dilemma, and it's the one I most wanted you to be aware of as we step into this holy week together. We said that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. However, Monday, Thursday night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he's waiting on Judas, waiting on the authorities, waiting on the soldiers, waiting for what he knows is going to happen, the Bible says he fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He prayed that three times. Why would Jesus three times, at the last minute, want to retrade the deal, want to back out of the commitment, want not to do what the lamb slain from the foundation of the world had committed to doing. Why on Monday, Thursday, would he three times ask his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me? Why would he do that? 
Well, one answer has to do with what he knows is going to happen that night and the next day. How he knows he's going to be chained and dragged and up all night before Caiaphas and Annas, Caiaphas, all of that. Then he knows he's going to be turned over to the Romans. He knows about the crown of thorns, lacerating his scalp all the way to the skull. He knows about the scourging, the cat of nine tails in which are embedded pieces of lead and nails and shell. The whip thrust down onto the back. I won't go into detail. If you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ some years ago, remember how horrific that was? Gibson wanted to make it as realistic as actually happened. And he was persuaded not to do that because his movie would be rated X. So what you saw is not as realistic as what happened. Many victims died just under the scourging. And Jesus knows. And then the crucifixion itself. If the Romans wanted you to die slowly, as an example to others, they would put nails through your hands, but your hands can't hold your body weight. So then they would rope your arm, and they would nail your feet, but your feet would be on a pedestal where you could stand so you wouldn't suffocate, and you'd die of exposure, thirst and exposure. That's typically how they crucified. In Jesus' situation, because of Passover, because of Shabbat, they wanted him to die that day. So they put the nails through the wrists because that can support the body weight. But eventually, because they pierce the ulnar nerve, the body, you can't move the arms, and you can't get your weight up off of your lungs, and you begin to suffocate. So then they break the legs. They have a club called a crucifragium that breaks the legs so that you can't support your weight, and you suffocate, and you die. That's how the thieves died. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs, he had already given up his spirit, fulfilling the prophecy, I can count on my bones. It's been calculated that crucifixion is the worst, most tortured form of death ever devised. It's illegal in every nation but one on earth. And Jesus knows that's what he's facing on that Monday, Thursday, when he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But I don't think that answers my question. I don't think that's the answer to the dilemma. We understand the dilemma, how God can be holy, how God can be loving, and we can be sinners by putting our sin on a sinless son. We understand how Jesus resolved the dilemma of how he could actually be executed for us. But this third dilemma, why would Jesus pray three times, is answered by the first. Remember when Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus refers to his father, not his father, but as God. The only time when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God takes the sinfulness of humanity and places it on the sinless soul of his perfect son. And in that moment, the father must turn from the son. And for that one moment in all of eternity as the Father and the Son are separated from each other and the Son has to feel the horrors of the sinfulness of all of humanity in a way you and I can't, as sinners can't begin to imagine. In that moment, Jesus must cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is what he didn't want above everything else. And yet three times he says, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. 
So understand, this Thursday, this Monday, Thursday, this Holy Week, Jesus chose not only the scourging and the whipping and the beating and the crucifixion, he chose your sins. He chose that. While Judas and the authorities, the soldiers, are making their way out the eastern gate from the uh, Anthony Fortress and making their way down the Kidron Valley, he's watching all this happen at night. He's watching the torches. He could have turned and fled. He could have made his way back to the Judean wilderness, back to the Galilee. He'd be out of the way. The authorities wouldn't worry anymore. They wouldn't care about him. He could live a natural life. He's standing there watching and waiting and choosing. But also, don't miss this. This Monday, Thursday, not only did the Son choose that, the Father chose that. Three times, the Father said no to his Son so he could say yes to us. Don't miss that. The Father chose for his Son to be scourged and whipped and tortured and crucified. The Father chose for the Son to bear the sins of every sinner of all of history on his sinless soul. The Father chose for that moment when his Son in agony would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He chose that for you. He chose that. And so I say all of that, all of that, to say that after Jesus said, nevertheless, not I my will, but yours be done, you and I can take away on this Palm Sunday, on this Holy Week, this fact. Never again wonder if God loves you. No matter what you're facing, no matter what your dilemmas, no matter what your questions, your challenges, please don't ever again wonder if God loves you. I'll illustrate that this way, and then we'll close. Shockingly to me, it has been 10 years since our oldest son went through cancer. Surgery that didn't get it all, and so six weeks of radiation in that horrible machine, MD Anderson down in Houston. That was 10 years ago. Can't believe that. Right now, this March, this April, this spring, six weeks of that, radiating him to kill the cancer to save his life. I went down to be with him before all that started. I went into the room. That's my picture I took of that machine. And in that moment, I know you believe me when I tell you I would have traded places with my son. I would have paid all the money I have to trade places with my son. All of you who are parents and grandparents understand what I mean, don't you? Imagine me sending my son there. Sending my son there to take radiation for somebody who else who had cancer and he didn't so that they could be healed because of his suffering. If I did that for you, would you ever wonder again if I loved you? If I sent my son to go through that for you, would you ever wonder if I loved you? Well, I can make that even more to the point. A number of years ago, I was in Huntsville speaking down there on the college campus there. Got to meet the warden, since retired, a very strong Christian, who gave me a tour of the Huntsville prison. He asked if I'd like to see the prison. I said, as long as I get out, willing to go in as long as I get out. Took me around. It was really fascinating. And we went into the execution chamber. I'd been in that room. 
So now imagine, I chose for my son to go there so that you don't have to. Would you ever again wonder if I loved you? This holy week, this holy week, please remember why it happened. Because it happened for you. Let's pray. Whatever your dilemmas, your challenges, your questions, would you bring them on this holy week, on this Palm Sunday, to the one who chose to die that you might live and put them in his nail-scarred hands? Would you thank him for how much he loves you, for what he proved to you this week? Thank him for such love, mercy, and grace. Would you do that right now? Now ask him if you need forgiveness, ask him to forgive you. If you need wisdom, if you need encouragement, ask him for wisdom, encouragement. Whatever you need most today, ask him in his love to give you and trust his love for you. And now on this Palm Sunday, join the crowds and sing Hosanna to the King in your heart, in your praise, all through this day, all through this week. Hosanna to the King. Lord Jesus, this is our prayer. This is our worship. This is our gratitude. We don't have words to express our hearts. But how thankful we are for the love you chose for us, the debt you paid for us, the suffering you took for us, the death you died for us, the victory you won for us, the eternity that you guaranteed for us this week, so long ago, and this week, today. This is our praise, our prayer, and our thanks. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So next Sunday, 9.30 and 11, we will start the service, as we do every year, by joining 2.2 billion people in saying he is risen, he is risen indeed. This holy week, may it be a holy week for you. God bless.